Well, we have come in Mark's gospel to the first day of the last week of Jesus' earthly life. The first day of the last week of Jesus' earthly life. Christ's coming to Jerusalem, riding upon a colt, upon the foal of a donkey, takes place on the Sunday before Easter Sunday. And so our text this morning is how the Passion Week begins. This is Jesus' last Sunday before he will rise from the dead and usher in a new creation. Now we remember the context is that Jesus has just healed blind Bartimaeus. Already there was a large crowd following him on that 18-mile road from Jericho to Jerusalem. And now they are approaching their destination. And while this scene may be familiar to many of us, you may know it as the Palm Sunday passage or the triumphal entry in, its, in all four of the Gospels, uh, Mark's version in particular has some kind of odd uh, and oddly specific details that uh, kind of beg us, invite us to consider the deeper meaning of this passage. Uh, so much so that we could almost call this passage the parable of the donkey. So uh, with that in mind, let's walk through our text and then uh, we'll try to make some deeper applications from it. So starting in verse one, it says, and when they came uh, nigh, came near to Jerusalem unto Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he sendeth forth two of his disciples. Now, just to get uh, your kind of geographical bearings, uh, Jerusalem is situated with the Mount of Olives to its east. Uh, the ridge of those mountains rises about um, 100 meters above the city. So uh, from that place, you have a really uh, striking, beautiful view of the temple and of the city. You could go on the internet and actually look for what Jerusalem looks like from the Mount of Olives. So if you wanted to take a, a picture or get a postcard of Jerusalem, you would want to do it from uh, this Mount of Olives area. Bethpage and Bethany were both villages that are just on the outskirts of the city and uh, roughly about two miles a walk from the temple. Bethpage means a house of figs or house of unripe figs. Uh, and this is significant because next week we'll see Jesus is going to curse a fig tree. So this in itself has a symbolic import for us. Uh, Bethany uh, is harder to translate, and there's multiple uh, proposals for what it means, but it, it likely means a house of God's hearing or house where Yahweh has hearkened. Uh, some people will say it means house of obedience or house of sorrows. Whatever the case, this was the hometown of Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, and it's also probably where Jesus stayed during this last week of ministry. So uh, Jesus and the crowd approach these two villages and the city of Jerusalem starts to come into view. It was required by the law of God that three times a year, uh, all Jewish males who were of age must appear before the Lord to offer sacrifice. So Deuteronomy 16 says, three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses. And then it lists the three occasions. First, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, this would be Passover. Second, at the Feast of Weeks, this is Pentecost. And then third, at the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths. And it says, they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of the Lord your God, which he has given you. 
So three times a year, there were these kind of caravans of Jews traveling up to Jerusalem to go to the temple. And it was customary for uh, pilgrims making this journey to sing the psalms as they went, especially the psalms of ascent. Uh, So they're called the psalms of ascent for this very reason. So Psalms 120 to 134, we sing a number of these. These would be your kind of, uh, uh, the music you're listening to as you're making your way up to uh, Jerusalem. So for example, like we sing in Psalm 121, I will lift up my eyes to the hills, I'm not going to sing. I will lift up my eyes to the hills from whence comes my help. And it is these hills of Jerusalem, these hills of Zion and the Mount of Olives, that would be what they're looking at as they're singing these songs. You know, go through the psalm, uh, these psalms of ascent and just note how frequently it's talking about hills and mountains and Zion. It, it's all over the place. So this is your kind of road trip tunes that you're, you're singing as you go up. So Jesus and the crowds are drawing near to Jerusalem, and it's just a few days, remember, before Passover. And then he sends forth two of his disciples to run an errand for him. Verses two and three. And Jesus saith unto them, go your way into the village over against you, and as soon as ye be entered into it, ye shall find a colt tied, whereon never man sat, loose him and bring him. And if any man say unto you, why do ye this? Say ye that the Lord hath need of him. And then straightway he will send him hither. So the task of these two unnamed disciples is to go and fetch a young donkey called, translated a colt in the King James. Um, And Jesus specifies that this young donkey is one that no man has ever sat upon. Moreover, this donkey is presently bound. It's tied up. Now we might wonder why get a donkey? Why a donkey? Well, back in Genesis 49, remember when Jacob is uh, approaching his death and he calls the 12, his 12 sons to him and he prophesies over them? Well, listen to what he says about Judah. He prophesies, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people, binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. So this is this very enigmatic prophecy that Jacob Jacob gives, and for hundreds and thousands of years, they're wondering, you know, what is the meaning of this obscure prophecy that Jacob makes at the end of his life? Notice, so rather than a horse, the donkey is the vehicle of choice for Judah's kings. And by that donkey, they signified that their trust was not in horses or chariots as the nations put their hope in military strength, but rather in the name of the Lord. So to ride upon a donkey is a sign of faith in God's power to save. Moreover, as we heard a less read Zechariah 9, Zechariah 9 also prophesied that when the Messiah would come, he would come, quote, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So it is this moment in history that Genesis 49, Zechariah 9, and a bunch of other passages are looking forward to. Now, uh, we are not told whether Jesus had already made arrangements with the owner to acquire this donkey, but Jesus tells his disciples that if anyone asks them, you know, what are you doing loosing this animal? Are Are you trying to steal this animal? Just tell them, the Lord hath need of it. And when the owners hear that, they will send the donkey straightway to Jesus. 
So notice what Jesus is doing here. He's explicitly identifying himself as the Lord. The revelation of who Jesus is has been shown forth more and more in this gospel. We've seen it in his baptism, by his teachings, by his transfiguration, by his miracles, his authority over nature, over demons, over sickness. And here now from Jesus' own mouth, he says what he needs, God needs. What Jesus needs, the Lord needs. Say ye that the Lord hath need of it. Jesus is, a, is publicly identifying himself as the Lord. In verse 4 it says, And the, the disciples, they went on their way, and found the colt tied by the door, without, that's outside, in a place where two ways met, and they loose him. So the disciples find the donkey, just as Jesus said they would. And for some reason, Mark wants us to know that it was tied up outside in a place where two ways met. This is one of the details he adds that the other Gospels uh, do not include. So this is not merely a road or a dead end or just right outside someone's house. This is what we would call kind of a, a crossway. It's where multiple roads come together. And it is here at this crossway outside a door where the donkey is tied up. Okay? Perhaps you're starting to catch some of the parable here. So what do the disciples do? Well, they loose and unbind the donkey. Verses 5 to 7. And certain of them that stood there said unto them, What do ye, loosing the colt? And they said unto them, Even as Jesus had commanded, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and cast their garments on him, and he sat upon him. So the donkey is fetched, it's unbound at the crossway, and it is brought to Jesus. And because there is no saddle, this donkey has never carried a rider. And we, we learn from Matthew that it actually comes with its mother. So there's, there's two animals here. But Jesus rides on the younger one that's never been ridden upon. And the disciples place their garments upon it. And that is where God is going to sit. This is where God sits down. Seeing Jesus now mounted upon the donkey, this is what we read in verse 8. And many spread their garments in the way. And others cut down branches off the tree and strawed them or scattered them in the way. So remember what blind Bartimaeus did when Jesus called him to himself. What did he do? He throws off his garments and he, he follows Jesus. So just as blind Bartimaeus had cast off his garments to follow Jesus, here now the crowds join in. They place their garments on the road as a carpet for the Lord, and then they cut down branches and strew them in the way. So what is signified by these actions? Well, these are the actions of a people who are coronating a king. When Solomon was crowned, he rode upon David's mule, and the people sang and shouted, Long live King Solomon, 1 Kings 1. When Jehu was anointed king by Elisha, it says, then each man hastened to take his garment and put it under him on the top of the steps. And they blew trumpets saying, Jehu is king. That's 2 Kings 9.12. So by the putting off of their garments, the people are pledging themselves to be loyal servants to this king. Their garments are signs of their own bodies, their own selves, their own works. And by placing them on the ground before him, they are placing themselves beneath his lordship. What about the cutting down of branches? Well, by the cutting down of, br of branches, the people are portraying Christ as riding high above them, even above the trees. 
We see in 2 Samuel 5 that God's heavenly army is said to march upon the tops of the trees. So God says to David, And it shall be when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the mulberry trees, then you shall advance quickly. For then the Lord will go out before you to strike the camp of the Philistines. Likewise, in the Psalms, God is portrayed as this heavenly warrior who, quote, rides upon the clouds and upon the heaven of heavens. Psalm 68, 4 and 33. What's interesting about Psalm 68 is that it also speaks of God coming to save his people in a great procession towards the temple, just like our scene. So listen to Psalm 68, 24 to 26. It says, They have seen your procession, O God, the procession of my God, my King, into the sanctuary. The singers went before, the players on instruments followed after. Among them were the maidens playing timbrels. Bless God in the congregations, the Lord from the fountain of Israel. Well, what are the people doing here as Jesus the Lord rides upon the branches? Well, in verses 9 and 10, we hear them singing psalms and songs of praise. It says, And they that went before and they that followed cried, saying, Hosanna. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Blessed be the kingdom of our father David that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So the crowds are singing and crying out this psalm of salvation. Uh, Hosanna is is a request for God to save now, save right now. And in Jesus, the son of David, they believe that salvation has indeed come. The words that Mark records for us come from Psalm 118, which says, Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. So this crowd uh, rightly recognizes that Jesus is the promised son of David who has come to deliver daughter Zion. And so they rejoice. But what they do not yet know is how that salvation is to come. What is um, ironic about their singing of Psalm 118 is that this is also the psalm that says, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And the verse that immediately follows what they are saying here is this, bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. So while the crowd thinks that they are coronating a new King Solomon, a new Jehu, a new son of David, They are also unknowingly praising the festal sacrifice. They're actually praising the paschal lamb who in just a few days will be rejected by the builders, bound to the horns of the altar, nailed to a Roman cross. This is how the king answers their cries to save now. This is how God answers that cry of Hosanna. Finally, in verse 11, the king and sacrifice enters his own city. It says, And Jesus entered into Jerusalem and into the temple. And when he had looked round about upon all things, and now the eventide was come, he went out unto Bethany with the twelve. Now perhaps you're thinking, uh, that's a little anticlimactic. Where is the cleansing of the temple? Where is the turning over of the tables? Where is the showdown with the Pharisees? Why does Jesus seem to just go in, look around, and then because it's late, he goes to Bethany? What is going on here? 
Well, unlike Matthew and Luke, Mark tells us that the day before Jesus cleanses the temple, he first enters the city and surveys his house. So on Sunday, he enters as a king to observe his kingdom, and he enters as a priest to inspect the health of the temple. In other words, uh, this is God being very patient with his rebellious people. It is also kind of this dark quiet before a great storm. Before Jesus turns over the tables on Monday and casts out the den of thieves, he arrives and he puts them on notice. He enters and observes and gives them one more day to repent. In other words, the king has come, he's showing himself, he's looking around, and he's going to be back tomorrow. Here's your chance, here's your last chance to get things in order. All right, so that is our text. On the Sunday, a week before his resurrection, Jesus enters Jerusalem as a humble king and then goes back to Bethany. What is the purpose of giving us this passage. Well, the whole purpose of this text is to show forth the mercy and humility and patience of God. It is to teach us that before Christ comes riding upon a white horse to judge and destroy his enemies, which he will, as we see in Revelation 19, he first comes meek and mild and riding upon a donkey. The way that the kingdom of God is established in this world is, quote, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts, Zechariah 4, 6. And that same spirit is given in all its fullness to the Lord Jesus, who says at the very beginning of his ministry, quoting from Isaiah 61, the following. Jesus says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. So this is the spirit that is given to Christ, and this is the spirit that is to characterize the church in its days of being militant on earth. If we would be a faithful church militant that seeks first the kingdom of God and his justice, then our lives and our ministries should look like Christ, humble and riding upon a donkey. It should sound like, like psalms of praise and thanksgiving and a royal procession as we walk to God's city to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice before him. This is the way of the Lord. There is no other way of salvation than this. I want to close with two points of application for us as we consider the kind of deeper meaning, this parable of the donkey. So first point of application, and one that is very flattering, it is that we are all like donkeys. We are like donkeys. We know from the sacrificial system that animals represent different kinds of people. So for example, a young bull uh, signifies a priest, a male goat signifies a ruler, a female goat or a female lamb signifies a layman, and, and so on. 
We also know uh, that God gave distinctions between clean and unclean animals as a sign of the difference between clean and unclean nations. This is the whole vision that Peter has where God's telling him, you know, rise, Peter, kill, and eat. So a donkey uh, is an unclean domestic animal. It's a Gentile, and it was used for carrying heavy burdens. And yet there's this really odd law in Exodus 13. This is right after the Passover where God says this. He says, Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. And if you will not redeem it, then you shall break its neck. So the principle of the Passover is that a firstborn dies in order for them to live. So God is going to kill all the firstborn throughout Egypt, and then you have to have the blood of the lamb over your doorposts. And from that day forward, God says, when you you enter the land of Canaan, when you take the promised land, all the firstborn belong to me. And it's meant to be a reminder to you of how God saved you from Egypt. So it's, it's the sign, it's this ritual, the firstborn always belongs to God. And if it was a clean animal, you'd actually take it and sacrifice it to the Lord. But what if, what if, what if it's not a clean animal? Well, you, you can't sacrifice a donkey at the altar. So you actually need a lamb, it says, to die in its place. Otherwise, you have to just break the donkey's neck. So when a donkey gave birth, that firstborn belonged to the Lord. And in order, in order to actually use it, you had to offer that clean animal in its place. Uh, the tradition, the long tradition of the Christian church has been to see in Jesus riding upon this young donkey a picture of the salvation of the world. And by the world, I mean uh, the Gentiles, the nations. The donkey is tied up by the door outside at a crossroads. And by this is signified the nations who are bound up in sin and without direction. They do not know their right hand from their left. They do not know where to go. And they certainly do not know the way of the Lord. Moreover, it is the disciples of Jesus, the apostles, who go, who are sent forth and unbind the donkey. And they place their garments over it. So also we'll see after Pentecost, the disciples are sent forth into the world to preach the gospel, to bind and loose, and to loose the nations from their sins. And what do they do when their sins are forgiven? Christ is enthroned above them. And when this donkey receives the Lord Jesus upon its back, notice where Jesus leads it. He leads it to God's house, to the temple. He leads that donkey, it seems, almost into the very place that the Gentiles were not allowed to go. What is Jesus going to uh, yell at the Jews when he goes and cleanses the temple? He said, this is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. But they had erected a barrier, a literal physical barrier, uh, what we call a wall of hostility, to actually prevent Gentiles from going in and offering sacrifice to God. This is what Jesus has come to tear down, and he signifies this already by riding this unclean animal, this donkey that was bound, that he uh, has loosed, and he rides it all the way into the temple. Jesus is the lamb that redeems the donkey so that its neck need not be broken, but rather it can be put into God's service. It can trade the burdens of sin for the burden of Christ and his cross, and in so doing, it can ride upon the branches high in the heavens. What this means in very plain terms is that if you don't want to die in your sins, 
if you don't want your neck broken as your sins deserve, well, then you must humble yourself beneath Christ, the King. And you must ask him to clothe you, to rule you, to bridle your passions and steer you straight to his Father's house. This is how Christ triumphs over us. So that's application number one. We are all like donkeys. Second, we are also all temples. We are all temples. Paul says this explicitly in 1 Corinthians. But every human being is a place of worship. And inside every person is a place where sacrifices are offered and some God is magnified. That God might be yourself, it might be someone else, it might be something. But everyone is worshiping all the time. Everyone is serving someone all the time, every moment of every day. What happened to Solomon's temple when there was idolatry and uncleanness in it? Well, God abandoned the temple. His glory departed. Ezekiel sees the glory of God leaving, and then Babylon comes in and destroys it. The place was destroyed. But here, in Jesus' entrance into the temple, we have the glory of God returning. When you receive Christ as king into yourself, when Jesus is enthroned in your most holy place, the inner recesses of your spirit, well, then Christ can actually make you glorious. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2. But God has revealed hidden things to us through his spirit. For the spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by him. Every Lord's Day, we enter God's house, and in worship, he enters us. And when we receive his spirit, and his word searches us us out, we are convicted. We are comforted. We have our inward thoughts and intents of our heart discerned. And all this, King Jesus does, so that when he does come in judgment, when he does come riding upon a white horse, We can count that day as a day of glory and vindication and not a day of fear and condemnation. So cast yourself upon this merciful and humble king. Cry mercy, cry Hosanna, and he will answer. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.